Well, I think the future, if it continues on the trajectory that it's on, which uh, it shows every sign that it will, particularly under Xi Jinping's leadership, um, is very bleak. I, I think it is um, day by day being turned into uh, simply another uh, Chinese city under the direct control of the CCP. On today's British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Benedict Rogers, founder CEO of Hong Kong Watch and deputy chair of the Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission. Ben is a human rights activist whose work focuses on Asia and he's written books on Burma, Indonesia and China. He's also the East Asia team leader at Christian Solidarity Worldwide and co-founder of the International Coalition to Stop Crimes Against Humanity in North Korea. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Benedict Rogers, welcome to British Thought Leaders. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So, you're an expert on human rights in Asia. It feels there's 101 things we could talk about, really. There's so many things happening in the world right now. But I wanted to start out with something that's a big topic at the moment, which is Taiwan. And Nancy Pelosi visited recently, and it brought a lot of attention to, to the plight of the island, which is great. But at the same time, it felt a bit like poking the dragon that is the CCP to see if it breathes fire, and we saw increased military activity at the time. Can you share with us your thoughts on the situation in Taiwan and whether diplomatic visits, or what effects they have? And do you feel it's time that the West should start poking the dragon that is the CCP a bit more vigorously? Yes, I mean, I think it was absolutely right and, and very welcome uh, that she went. I, I think it is uh, time for uh, the democratic world to to signal its support for Taiwan, to, to recognize Taiwan as a, uh, a vibrant democracy uh, and, and a real ally that shares our values. So I think high-level visits of that kind uh, send that message and, and send a message also to Beijing that we're not going to be uh, cowed by, uh, by, by them. Um, I, I think that there's value in in poking the dragon a little bit to to send the message that um, you know we're not going to kowtow any longer, um, but I think one does have to be careful how much you uh, poke the dragon. So the line for me, for example, I, I'm a big fan of Taiwan. I've visited a number of times. I think we should be strengthening our ties with Taiwan, but I think it would be counterproductive if we actually as much as it deserves it, if we actually recognized officially uh, Taiwan's independence or established formal diplomatic relations, that would probably be a line too far that, that I think would bring what we want to prevent, which is an invasion and a, and a war. So everything uh, f falling short of full recognition, we should be doing um, increased high-level visits, uh, lots of exchanges, supporting Taiwan's uh, role in multilateral organizations. Um, but not uh, full uh, formal recognition. So uh, we, we have a, a British delegation considering going over at the moment, I think. If, if you feel that would be a, a good step? Absolutely. I, I think that would be very welcome. And I think the more delegations from different countries, I mean, it's great that there was Nancy Pelosi, that I think there's just been another congressional visit uh, uh, since her visit. Um, but I think it shouldn't just be the United States. We, we should have uh, parliamentary delegations from from other countries to signal to both to Taiwan and to China that this is an issue that concerns um, the, the whole free world. Mm -hmm. so moving on to an, another uh, region that's under threat from the, the Chinese Communist Party, and that's Hong Kong. So you're the CEO of Hong Kong Watch, and you co-founded the organization in 2017. 
Could you talk us through um, what was behind your decision to, to found the organisation and what its mission is? Well, I, I had lived in Hong Kong for the first five years after the handover from 1997 to 2002. Um, it was my, my first job after university. It was where I began my, my working life. Uh, and when I left Hong Kong in 2002, I would say that I wasn't very worried about Hong Kong at that time. One country, two systems was was working reasonably well, and um, I was certainly very concerned about human rights in mainland China and in other parts of the region. But I thought that Hong Kong was, uh, you know, faced a reasonably good future. <laughs> when that started to change, um, and this and the turning point for me was the Umbrella Movement in 2014. Right. Uh, I felt very strongly that having lived in Hong Kong, I should uh, speak out for Hong Kong. So I started to do so just uh, in a personal capacity, uh, sort of in my spare time, writing opinion pieces and talking to MPs. But by 2017, I realized that uh, it was no longer sustainable for me to be doing it as one person in my spare time with no, no other support. And so I felt there was a need to form an organization, and I came together with a few others to establish Hong Kong Watch. Uh, and our mission, essentially, our mission for the first few years was to uh, try to stand up for one country, two systems, and, and to p persuade the, the international community to put pressure on China to uphold its promises uh, under the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Of course, now China has completely reneged on all its promises. It's destroyed one country, two systems. And so our role now is to keep the spotlight on the situation, to speak up for those who are imprisoned, uh, to highlight every further uh, uh, erosion or dismantling of Hong Kong's freedoms, and to work for um, in greater international uh, pressure on, on China uh, for what it's done to Hong Kong. And it seems it's going quite well. I saw your, your patrons list is basically mm. the who's who of Hong Kong, <laughs> uh, really. I thought it, it's going quite well with the organisation. Yes, it's. Um, I mean, we only started in 2017. We we started with one uh, part-time employee. I I was chairing the the trustees um, and doing it in my spare time, um, and then now we have uh, uh, about eight or nine uh, employees. I'm I'm full time, um, and as you say, we have a, a wonderful range of totally cross-party patrons. We're we're very much a cross-party organisation. So we have the last governor, Chris Patton, the former Conservative Foreign Secretary, Malcolm Rifkind, but also Labour MPs, Liberal Democrat MPs, um, and the crossbench uh, peer, Lord Alton. So it's, um, yes, it's, it's really grown and I think had, had an impact. Great. So we're 25 years from the handover. It feels the Hong Kong that we know and love is not kind of being damaged a little, it's being obliterated, mm. really. Um, the Chinese Communist Party is bringing in its own system without basic freedoms, without media freedoms, without religious freedoms. How, where do you see the future going for this special region? And, and what do you feel the West can do to help? Well, I think the future, if it continues on the trajectory that it's on, which uh, it shows every sign that it will, particularly under Xi Jinping's leadership, um, is very bleak. I, I think it is um, day by day being turned into uh, simply another uh, Chinese city under the direct control of the CCP. Uh, and as you say, it's it, it's it's changed. Uh, uh, it's it's unrecognisable in terms of. I mean, physically, it's still recognisable, but in terms of its um, daily life and freedoms, it's it's changed uh, very rapidly and very dramatically. And I think that will only continue. Um, I think in terms of what the international community can do, uh, the um, 
there's been a very good response uh, by the British government, by some other governments, in terms of uh, enabling Hong Kongers to get out of Hong Kong, um, the uh, British National Overseas Scheme that the UK has, but also Canada, Australia, to a certain extent the United States, uh, have opened pathways for Hong Kongers to get out. But not enough has been done to uh, uh, ensure that those responsible for destroying Hong Kong's freedoms um, in Beijing and, and in the Hong Kong government uh, pay a price for what they've done. Uh, only the United States has imposed sanctions. Uh, and so I think it's time that the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, the EU uh, should impose targeted sanctions, uh, not on Hong Kong as a city, but on uh, individual officials and entities in Beijing and Hong Kong to make it clear that they, they can't get away with tearing up a, uh, an international treaty, um, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, um, without some consequences. Mm. It seems maybe some of those officials have properties outside mm. of Hong Kong in, in the West, and like we were doing with the Russians, we could sanction them in that kind of way individually. That, that's exactly right. In fact, Hong Kong Watch uh, published a a report earlier this year um, uh, detailing an, a number of Hong Kong officials uh, who are part of the CCP's apparatus in Hong Kong uh, who have uh, property and, and, and assets here and in other countries around the world. Um, and uh, about 110 parliamentarians from both houses of parliament in this country then wrote to the foreign secretary uh, urging her to uh, conduct a full audit of, of uh, assets um, uh, with a view to imposing sanctions. So that's absolutely what should be done. And you touched on the issue of the BNOs. Um, I just wondered if you could talk to us a bit more about that. It seems there's an influx of people from Hong Kong making the UK their home now. What's your organisation doing in this area? Yes, yeah, so we, um, we've been involved in this right from the start. Um, uh, I mean, long before the government even announced uh, the BNO scheme, we were uh, very much advocating for the government to do so. We were delighted when they did. We then advocated for an extension uh, uh, to the BNO scheme to enable young Hong Kongers who uh, uh, didn't previously qualify and who are among the most vulnerable uh, to be given BNO status to be able to come to the UK without their, their parents, um, obviously as long as they're over 18. Um, uh, and the government did that. So I think we've, we've made quite a difference in that regard. Um, and then when the BNO scheme started, we played a very active role in advocating to the British government to make sure that there was a, a proper uh, welcome and integration scheme. To, uh, because I think at the very beginning we were concerned that uh, it looked as if the government uh, had introduced this scheme but given very little thought to what happens once um, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people arrive here. Right. Um, to their credit, they listened to us. They did put in place a, a scheme and, and funding. Um, and we're now working with other uh, groups in the Hong Kong community on various initiatives. The particular niche that I think we have, there are other groups who, who can provide assistance with things like education and uh, housing and, and employment. But the particular way we can contribute is, is helping Hong Kongers understand uh, our political system. So right. we've established a a program of uh, civic and political education with workshops and uh, uh, town hall meetings to introduce Hong Kongers to different aspects of, of our political system here and how they can engage with it. Moving on to uh, another topic here, recently on, on NTD UK News we talked to Drew Pavlou, mm. who for those watching is an Australian human rights activist who was protesting opposite the Chinese embassy in London and got arrested for a bomb threat. 
Uh, he says the bomb threat was fabricated by the Chinese embassy, and they also sent out emails and letters in his name to other people. I just wonder if you could share with us your, your thoughts on, on what happened with Drew and also whether you've experienced anything like this with regards to the Chinese embassy. Mm. Well, I, I know Drew. Um, I'd had uh, quite a lot of correspondence with him over the last few years and then met him in person while he was in the UK. Uh, in fact, the first time I met him in person was uh, the day when he... Uh, did a protest about Peng Shui at Wimbledon, and he asked if that morning if I would go down, and I didn't have tickets to Wimbledon, so I couldn't go in, but he asked if I'd meet him at the gate and put on a Where is Peng Shui t-shirt and, and take a photograph with him, which I, I was happy to do. Um, and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, he's, I mean, he's a very passionate and dedicated and, and courageous uh, activist and, and regular protester, but he's totally non-violent. I mean, there's no way that he would, uh, you know, even contemplate uh, any act of violence, let alone a, a bomb threat. So certainly the email was fabricated. Whether it was fabricated by the embassy itself or, or somebody else on behalf of uh, the CCP system, I, I don't know, but certainly it was fabricated. That's all he was saying. Why would I send an email and sign yes. it with my own name exactly. when I'm right there? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Crazy. Yeah. Um, and yes, I, I have had uh, not exactly the same thing, but, but similar sort of emails um, uh, where um, whoever is doing this has put out emails in my name using a, a totally fake email address uh, and sent them around to members of parliament, to mm -hmm. people in the media. Um, and a lot of the emails are uh, really silly and, and, um, and people sort of instantly know that they're, that they're fake. Um, but one or two of them have been uh, somewhat um, you know, more dangerous. I think there was one that was an attempt to... I happen to be a member of the Conservative Party and, the, and somebody... Uh, contacted the membership department of the Conservative Party as if it was me resigning my membership. Right. <laughs> Luckily, they did check with me uh, on my real email address and I confirmed that I, I wasn't uh, wanting to resign. Um, there was another email that went out quite widely saying that we were folding Hong Kong Watch. And, mm -hmm. and actually, that, that one was um, potentially quite serious uh, and, until it got to the third or fourth line because it then became rather silly. It, it started by saying, you know, we're closing Hong Kong Watch because there's nothing more we can do and we, we've done everything we can. But it, and if they'd left it at that, people might have believed it. But, um, but they went on to say that uh, the remaining funds uh, would be used either, uh, I think it said a million pounds on a um, a book launch event for my uh, forthcoming book, which would be, that would be quite an event. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and also on um, Luke de Pulford, who's one of our, uh, a member of our advisory board, um, buying various properties <laughs> around London. And um, I think most people realise that was not the kind of thing that either Luke or I would do. Yeah, so, a book launch um, in the Bahamas. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they do, I mean, they are doing this a lot, but they, they do seem to be um, going so over the top that it mm. just looks very silly. The Morning Star recently published an article claiming, and this is a quote, China is protecting the rights of the Uyghur population. And they said that's according to diplomats from 30 Islamic countries. So this massively flies in the face of what we understand is happening in Xinjiang, what we're told by NGOs and governments in the West. Could you talk to us about how we should view the, the denials of these 30 countries? Yes. I mean, first of all, I think it's uh, worth noting that uh, the Morning Star, of course, was founded um, many years ago by the Communist Party of Great Britain. So um, it has an obvious uh, allegiance ideologically 
um, and therefore I wouldn't take uh, their reporting so seriously. I, I think far more concerning is the position of the 30 uh, Islamic countries. Um, and and it's, it's something that's been going on for some time. Um, I think it's deeply troubling, particularly given the uh, direct religious persecution of the Uyghurs who are predominantly Muslim people, um, uh, and Uyghurs who you know, uh, choose to fast during Ramadan, who, who abstain from alcohol, abstain from pork, uh, have long beards, uh, end up in, in the prison camps. So for Muslim-majority nations to be taking China's side on this issue is, is quite bizarre, really. Mm -hmm. And I can only uh, assume that it's to do with um, uh, economic uh, interests. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, goes through many uh, Islamic countries uh, and maybe other forms of Chinese investment. And that kind of dependency on, on China economically and allowing China that economic coercion, I think, is what is behind this. Um, and these Islamic countries, many of them have uh, voted uh, with China on resolutions at the United Nations. Um, I know Saudi Arabia and, and Pakistan in particular have even pretty much not just uh, um, adopted China's uh, propaganda, but, but pretty much supported what China is doing uh, to the Uyghurs. So it's, um, yeah, it's really uh, strange and, and very concerning. Mm. So is this kind of pressure on, on other nations, particularly smaller nations, a widespread thing, because I've heard similar things with Africa and countries like Sri Lanka. Yes, I think it's definitely a widespread uh, issue. Um, uh, I think large parts of, of Southeast Asia, um, I've worked for many years on, on Burma or Myanmar, um, they're certainly now in, in, in China's pocket, Cambodia even more so, um, other parts of, of Asia um, and, and right across uh, Africa. And I think it's something that the the West really needs to um, confront and, and think about how we can counter it. Um, I think it's come about because of, uh, to a certain extent, Western neglect of, of those regions, um, and that's opened the way for Chinese investment, for aid, um, and it's resulted in, in debt dependency. So I think if the West can find ways to uh, offer those parts of the world uh, something that will um, take them away from China's uh, orbit, that would be very important. You mentioned about the, the origins of the Morning Star there. Um, and the Morning Star is based in Britain. It enjoys the freedoms that we have here. Why would it parrot the, the, the Chinese regime's line in that way? Is it a sense of comradeship, or is there a, a more sinister control element there, do you think? Um, I, I don't know about direct control. I, I mean, it may be there, but I, I, I'm not aware of any evidence of that. Um, uh, but but I think there is a, a tendency of um, organisations like the Morning Star to to have this really complete uh, blind um, loyalty to uh, regimes like uh, the the regime in China, um, and you and you even see it in a in a sort of milder form with people like um, uh, and I'm not saying by any means that this is uh, across the left. There are many good people on the left who who are very strong on uh, as critics of China. Um, but somebody like Mick Lynch, the um, General Secretary of the uh, Railway Union, the RMT, uh, recently uh, said something similar, said he, he thought that um, allegations of, uh, of Uyghur genocide were propaganda from, from the West. Um, and he also blamed the EU for Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So there does seem to be a tendency among some on the, uh, I suppose, the far left um, 
to both ha have an ideological affinity with some of these regimes, but also at the same time they're, they're very keen to, uh, to, to, to criticize and blame the West for everything. So um, I suppose they see it through the, the lens of if the West is criticizing China, um, you know, China must be doing the right thing from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and finally, so you've written books on, on Burma and Indonesia. We have a new book coming out. Yes, so it's, um, it's called The China Nexus. Um, and I, I started thinking about it, uh, about it just over a year ago um, and was keen to do a new book. Uh, it was obvious that you know, China was the thing that I was most focused on uh, uh, at the time or have been for the last several years. And so it was, I thought a book on China would be right. Um, I did have some initial doubts because I thought, well, there were so many books on China, um, thousands of books on China, what can I really add value? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that although there were so many books on China, um, there are actually very, very few that put together all the different elements of the human rights picture. So, um, so the book looks at, uh, and it, it contains a sort of personal um, theme as well, because I first went to China when I was 18 um, to teach English uh, in Qingdao for six months. And that's how I first became fascinated by China. Um, so the book starts with my experiences uh, uh, in China, in, in Qingdao, um, uh, living in Hong Kong. Uh, but then it goes through um, all the different issues of the dismantling of Hong Kong's freedoms, uh, repression in Tibet, uh, the genocide of the Uyghurs, the persecution of Christians, um, forced organ harvesting and the persecution of Falun Gong, uh, the threats to Taiwan. Um, it also includes chapters on China's relations uh, with Burma and with North Korea and the Chinese regime's complicity with crimes against humanity uh, by both those regimes. Um, and it has a chapter on uh, the, the wider crackdown on human rights in, in mainland China against dissidents, lawyers, bloggers, uh, and, and basically anyone who um, thinks independently of the CCP, and a final chapter on what the international community should do in response. And just, you mentioned North Korea, if I could throw in a, a bonus question, because I know you went to North Korea, and I, yes. I'm fascinated to hear what that was like. Yes, well, it was probably, I think, the, the most unusual uh, part of the world that I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. I went as part of a, a parliamentary delegation um, that consisted of Lord Alton and Baroness Cox, uh, who are two of the most outspoken uh, leading voices on human rights um, in, in Parliament. Um, and they had been very critical, quite rightly, uh, of the North Korean regime's appalling human rights record. But they had, um, for a period of time, uh, begun a, a, a channel of communication with the North Korean regime because their view, which I shared at the time, was that a regime that is as closed uh, as that, our, our objective should be to open it up and therefore we should use uh, all means possible with, within reason. And so that includes pressure, it includes criticism, it includes sanctions, but it also should include, where, where possible, um, some form of critical, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm hesitant to use the word engagement, but critical dialogue, critical conversation. Yeah. And so I went with them on one of those visits to talk to the North Korean regime. And um, it was, on the one hand, I would say there were times where I felt like I was walking straight into the pages of George Orwell's 1984. Um, but there were also other times where I thought, actually, you know, these are human beings uh, not as different from anyone else as, as you might think. Um, 
and um, and and it is just it is the world's most closed, most repressed uh, place. Although China under Xi Jinping is is catching up on on that record, I think. But um, yeah, it was it was fascinating, chilling. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we got anywhere in terms of um, trying to influence the regime. But um, maybe it maybe it sowed some seeds in the in the longer term. Mm. But anyway, just thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.